You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, for the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. For the next hour, we've lots for you and if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, which is short for organisation. If you have food news, a favourite recipe or discovered a fantastic new restaurant, I'd love to hear all about it. Coming up tonight, details of my recent visit to Glenarm Estate in County Antrim, which is home to a herd of shorthorn cattle that is producing award-winning beef. We hear how my interview with Stuart O'Keefe went to taste of Dublin. I'm delighted to say I'm on his list of three. Stay tuned to hear what I mean by that. We have an update on some events taking place this weekend and Geraldine has her weekly report from the Kingdom. But first, it's wine time. Ron Forrestal is in studio to talk booze cruises and wine boxes. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. So, Ron, people will be heading away now to France in their cars over to campsites or whatever and whatever bit of space they have in that car, they're going to be inclined to fill it up with wine. What do you think about that? Well, it's, it's, um, it's a popular pastime. Uh, for people who actually go to France. I suppose it comes down to two different sections of people who go to France, two different reasons that they go um, to buy wine. There's the uh, purpose-built trip where you actually go to buy wine. Uh, people generally buy it in Roscoff, Cherbourg, Le Havre, very close to the harbour. Load it up um, and come right back. The booze cruise. Yes. And then there's the second uh, group of people who are looking for more of the experience than the quantity of wine, if you know what I mean. So they're more anxious to get to uh, maybe see a vineyard, get to a cellar, um, or a commune of sellers that may have come together to sell a product in particular parts of France. And then it's for more of the experience, and then it's to buy, you know, a half dozen bottles of something nice um, that you want to take back with you. Quality over yes. quantity. Yes, absolutely. But it's, uh, that's generally the two brackets break down to. Now, it's, it's a much bigger pastime in the UK because it's much easier to get to France, and it's much cheaper to get to France. The obstacles you have here is that it's quite expensive to get there. If you're going to get a, you know, your station wagon, your your estate, your small van, and drive to France to pick up wine, you're probably going to spend three or four hundred euros on the on the ticket across. So it's not going to be that um, economical long in, in, when you put it all together. Because there is limits on how much you are allowed to buy. There is. Uh, it's ninety liters um, of still wine and sixty liters of sparkling wine. Not together, that's either of those. So 90 litres breaks down into 10 cases of wine, which is 10 dozen bottles. Now, that's, there's no questions asked if you arrive to the, to the, back to Ireland with that. There is, you can bring more, but you really need to be able to prove where it's going, as in it's not to be resold. That's the whole issue is here, that they don't want restaurants going to France, buying 40 cases of wine, bringing them back and selling them here without paying the duty, which is 38 euros a case to the government. And people that would be going for large quantities, it might be for a wedding or something like that, and those alliances that you've talked about, it's not, it's not enough to cater for a wedding, is it? It's not going to cover it, no. Not at all. Um, like a, a wedding that sits down with 150 or 200 people, you need a minimum of 100 bottles there. That would be the very, the very smallest amount, particularly if you're having a reception or anything else with dinner. You'd really want to be allocating a half bottle per person to three quarters of a bottle per person. So that wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't pay anyway to go there. 
But what, what I think is much more, the other section of people is a much more interesting trip. You know where you you might come back with four dozen bottles of wine that you've spent you know, 10 days putting together, that you've been to the vineyard, you've met the guy, you've you've bought six of his nice bottles, you had a taste of it there, you got the whole experience. And that's that's a different thing altogether. That gives you something to talk about when you're having a dinner party, that you've 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 been there, you've seen the wine, you bought something of quality. And the other the other thing of course is quality is that if you're gonna bring something back from France, if you're gonna go to the trouble of loading 50 kg or 60 kg more in your car on the way home, you gotta buy something that's pretty good now. And you gotta taste it first. Arriving to a supermarket in Roscoff and picking the first thing that you see and putting it in the back of the car is just, just, just um, very risky. <laughs> well, the supermarkets have a reputation for being dirt cheap whenever it comes to the wine. Well, there's no duty, you see. So they, basically they're taking a... Well, our duty here is 38 euros a case, which means that we have 322 a bottle. goes on duty. The government puts that on. So if you're buying your bottle for 8, 9 or 10 euros in a, in a supermarket, between VAT and duty, there's 5 or 6 euros that gone. So if you take that away, then that's what you're left on the cost of the wine. And you can, as you can imagine, the product is cheaper in France because that's where it's sourced. So it's... Well, you're advising people to taste before they buy. So what about a family that's maybe going over to the, the campsite for a couple of weeks? I suppose they have two weeks to try before they, they buy mm. to, to bring home. But have you any, any tips and advice apart from just the, the trying? Well, I think it's, it's, um, it's about picking something fairly recognisable to yourself probably is the thing. If you're going to go to a, to a, a huge supermarket that sells beer and, and wine, then try to look for something that you 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 have seen before, um, like you know if you're in the north you're coming to the north of France so you, like you have Muscadets you have Sancerres, but a Sancerre here in a supermarket will cost you you know 17, 18, 19 euros that kind of price and you will buy it over there for nine or ten euros. That's fantastic value. That's that's very good value. And if you don't want to spend that, if you wanted to buy just like a, a Loire Valley Sauvignon, which very popular from ourselves, uh, we sell three different Loire Sauvignon Blancs on our list here. Very very popular. Restaurants like them. They're they're good value, but you'll buy them over there in a the supermarket for four four fifty a bottle. That kind of price. That's great value, and they're very safe. And have you found in recent times that there is a move away from French wines because of the New World wines, the Australian, the New Zealand, the US wines, or is French wine still as popular as it would have been? It's, it's, it's not as popular as it was 15 to 20 years ago. Now, it hit a real low about five or six years ago, but it is making its way back now because they're becoming more um, market, uh, marketing savvy. Uh, their, their presentation is better on the bottles. They've realized that they're not going to change Chablis or, or Chateau de Pape or the Bordeaux or anything. They're going to always stay the same. But they've realized that there's a market in the house wine or the bottle of wine you buy in the supermarket for eight, nine or 10 euros. They realize the product has to look nice um, has to be from somewhere that people can recognise, like Loire, Burgundy, Bordeaux, um, and that the grape variety is written on the label, so that you know it's a Sauvignon Blanc and a White, it's a Chardonnay, it's a blend of Cabernet Merlot or it's a Shiraz, that you know what it is, because people just won't buy a product if they have no idea what's in it, which well, is fair enough. Unless they get to taste it first. Unless they get to taste it first, yeah, absolutely. 
So say you land back into Ireland then with your estate full of wine. How long is it going to last? And I don't mean in terms of <laughs> consumption. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's going to be wine that you need to drink sooner rather than later, isn't it? Oh, well, it is. Like if you take the whites, uh, if you're buying white uh, Sauvignon Blanc in particular, that's not meant to hold on to. So you'd really want to be using that um, probably, you know, up to 12 months after you take it in, you'd want to have it used. The reds then very much depend on what quality they were when you bought them. The only thing to remember is that, particularly for people who are going on holiday over there, that, and, and you've seen this yourself, wherever you go on holiday, it's a completely different mindset that you're in when you're drinking something. So you've got to be very sceptical when you're going buying to bring home, because what you've drank when you're sitting beside uh, you know, a lake or, or, or in your campsite or wherever it is, and it's been fantastic, is a lot of that has got to do with the fact that it's been 27 degrees, um, you're off work, uh, you're on holiday, and you drink virtually anything that was cold or, or tasted reasonable as a red. So you got to be very sceptical. That, and it has to be, uh, that's why I'm saying don't go for the stuff that costs two euros a bottle or 250. Just move up slightly. Move up to the like four to five euros because that'll turn into a bottle back here that would be 12 to 15 euros. And that's where you're going to get your value, not at the, at the lower. And the, we, we spoke off air about bag and boxes. You can get some excellent bag and boxes, you know, the five litre or 10 litre. They're very handy for moving because they're, they'll fit neatly in the back with your luggage and your car. But um, just be really careful on what they are. Really. Do they last longer? Like there's no air gets into it? This no, they would be fine. Like once yeah. they're tapped, I think a lot of them suggest that they're fine for eight or ten weeks once they're even tapped, once you've taken some out of them because they collapse the bag inside. So there's no air getting into the wine at all. Um, it's, you know, it, it's... Um, I've yet to find one that, that the reality is that nobody who produces anything that they're proud of is going to put it into a bag and box in really? particular, really. But there's you loads no, of wine You've no recommendations. <laughs> I've none. I don't have any. I don't stock any. The reason we don't stock any here is mainly because restaurants, we think, would be the only people that would kind of suit. But restaurants do not want to use them. They just... I don't know if you ever came across Kloberg wine. This is me going back, I'd say, 30 years. I remember my father used to get a, a wine box, it was called, the bag in the box, it was Kloberg. And there was one year he thought it was just never going to end. They're just He was sure our Lord was in that <laughs> box, <laughs> putting more wine into it. Sadly, the next time round, it just seemed to disappear overnight. <laughs> Yeah, there was, there's a famous ones for years. Stoles of Chelsea have produced them for years. Um, you know, they have Italian wine and they bottle it in the UK and uh, they, or they bag it in the UK, should I say, and it comes in from Italy. And it's, it's very good value. But the problem here is the duty on that five litre box of wine when it hits Ireland is 20 euros. So it's 20 odd euros. So that's, if you were to sell them in a supermarket here, that would mean they were 32 or 33 euros for a, for a five litre box of wine and nobody's going to spend that kind of money it just looks too small well tell me now what's your personal favorite in, in a bottle a french bottle of wine well it's it, it does of course there's big names that kind of stand out um like there's there's a handful of bordeaux are just fantastic um uh, very price prohibitive a lot of them they tend to be fairly expensive but i think there's, there's an area in the south of france and the reason i didn't mention it so far is because it's so far down that it's probably not somewhere you're going to end up driving to because it would be a 12-hour drive from from the north coast to the south probably and it's the languedoc it runs um it runs from the spanish border 
right over around the, around the lower uh, region of France. It's a huge producer of wine. It produces more wine than Australia. Um, and it's, it's the most competitive and the most quality-driven place in France, because they have to be. Because names that roll off the tongue are Burgundy and Bordeaux and, and Loire Valley and Côte But Languedoc has always been the poor relation of them, so they had to work much harder. And with that, you get a lot of... Um, it, the problem that they had in Burgundy and, and Bordeaux is that when, when the farms were left, um, um, vineyards were left to sons or daughters or whatever it may be, that they tend not to leave it to one, they tend to leave it to three. So they were kept splitting up. So some of the, the holdings are very, very small. And Languedoc didn't do that. They, they're, much, they're much more um, productive sites. So they have, they have sites of 25 or 30 hectares of grapes. So they get to produce their own label. And these are, these are farmhouses that you could drive up. You, you probably never have seen the product in Ireland before because it probably just produces enough to fill the French market and never exports anything. But you can come across some fantastic wine. Some, I mean fantastic wine now for very reasonable prices for costing over there maybe three or four euros a bottle with some smashing stuff. And of course, forestal.ie is the place to go to get more information about what you yourself stock. Yeah, absolutely. We're selling a lot of French wine. Um, I, I think French wine has made a comeback in the last few years. Um, even We've noticed in the last year that, that the spend is slightly moving up, that restaurants are selling a few more bottles on sale and a few more bottles of, of, of Bordeaux than they were before because things are improving just, just slowly, very, very slowly. Um, but yeah, I, I think French wine is, is fantastic. It's so diverse. It's so different between different sections of France. And they're the home of, of, of grape growing. They just, they were the, they wrote the laws that everyone else is, is running to catch up to. So. Great advice there, Ron. Try before you buy. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for coming in to share no all that. Thanks, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Well, if after all that chat about French wine, you're thinking of cracking open a bottle of red, the next feature will provide you with the perfect accompaniment. Adrian Morrow is Managing Director at Glenorm Estate in County Antrim, where farming is central to ensuring the estate's viability. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. The castle has been here since the 13th century and it's owned by Randall MacDonald, who is the Viscount of Dunluce. How long has there been farming on the estate? Records show that uh, they would have been farming um, probably, you know, not long, long after that. So they've been farming here for probably the past two or three hundred years anyway, that would be. Um, the family resided at Dunluce Castle, further north of here, was their original home when they came from Scotland. And Glenarm, I believe at that time, was used as a, a hunting range for the really came here and hunted for deer and stuff. So. But after Dunluce fell into the sea in later years of the kitchen, they removed, they, they came, they retreated back to Glenarm and they would have been farming at Glenarm then, uh, thereafter. Now the focus on farming at the moment is organic farming. That's what you decided to, to look at in 2009 because of the, the challenges of farming the land here and you moved from intensive farming basically in response to the challenges of modern farming. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it sort of came around more from, um, Arm is a, a large estate, it's quite hard to sustain. We're always looking at ways of uh, diversifying and um, making changes to try and stay 
um, you know, stay ahead. And uh, one of the things we were nervous about was subsidy farming in the late 1980s, and we knew there may be some changes there. If subsidies ever went at some time in the future, it could be hard to survive. So we, we were looking at all our things, and some of these other things in, involved some sort of uh, corporate um, uh, entertainment uh, occasionally. And we would have some American guests come over, and, and when they would come here, and they would see the lovely green fields and the green grass. And we'd give them lunch in the house, they would say, uh, uh, gee, is this your own beef here? But, um, you know, little did they know, uh, we, we couldn't eat our own beef. Uh, we were... Um, that was very predominantly continental type animals and much as we had tried uh, to eat our own beef we, we felt it was just too tough and not much flavour. So um, at one occasion um, Lord Nuss uh, asked me one day, he says, Adrian, why are we producing beef uh, we cannot eat? Because he was always asking, can we not just kill one of our animals for, for, the, for the meal, for these special guests? And I was saying, no, we can't, it's too, too tough. So he sort of hammered the seed to him, what were we doing producing this product that we couldn't eat? So that went through our minds for, well, probably an hour, three or four years, you know how things move in the glands very slow. So, and then we, we sort of realised, maybe we should be producing something we, we should eat and we should look at this a bit more serious. So we did, um, we started to investigate what we could, uh, what the best breed could be and uh, after some research and quite a lot of tasting which was enjoyable, um, we decided that an old breed called Shorthorn um, was one of the best flavoured beefs we'd ever eaten and there was nothing that we'd ever tasted like it so we decided to go uh, Shorthorn. We also decided at that time, if you're going to produce this lovely piece of beef, it had to be the best piece of beef you could eat, so it needed to be organic as well. Certainly, we didn't know how it was all going to pan out. We hadn't really got a big plan, uh, other than we were trying to produce something that we could eat and feed to our guests that they would be completely blown away by. So we, we, we changed our bills, we bought short horns, we got them on, uh, and we just put them onto our continental cows and we thought it might take three to four years before we would have this uh, you know, wonderful product, uh, flavoured beef. And um, we were quite surprised. Um, after the first year, we um, progressed with, you know, the animals was looking well and uh, certainly they performed well. They, they were easy to calve. Uh, so all sorts of uh, these new phenomenals was coming our way. Um, they were a quiet breed to work with, so you could walk in among them. They wouldn't sort of run. You know, it used to be the animals we kept here when you took the bar out of the gate, didn't matter how gently you took it out. They just went out to feel it the other side and ran for their lives. So. So it was quite uh, a pleasant change. The short-term breed was the one for us. So. And describe it, it's a brown cow. Is it a bit like a highland cow in terms of appearance? Um, I wouldn't say possibly highland. Um, it's a, they're, a, they're a very nice, ready roan. Roan is the word you're sort of looking for. You do get them either in red or red and roan, like a white, and a white through the red. And they're very pretty animals, very docile, very quiet. Uh, not really self-fleshing uh, um, 
so they're easy to get to where you want them to be. For the job we do, we like them to be well covered, uh, loads of fat on them, fat is where the flavour has. Now if you saw our beef, uh, probably in the local butcher shop, uh, you may not buy it because you might think you were buying too much fat, but that's where the flavour is. And what diet do they live on? The organic thing then was, um, we weren't quite sure about that, uh, it was a new thing for us again. And the first year we were organic, we were in turmoil because uh, the land had been so heavily uh, nitrogenised, or so much nitrogen on it over the years. When you took the nitrogen away after the first year, we were in poverty. <laughs> the place, Glenarm, was white, it wasn't green anymore. That first year was a shocker for us. And we, we panicked, we wondered what we could do. We had enough grass for the animals all summer. Uh, but. Next year, uh, it, was, it was okay, the following year was fine, it improved, we, we used um, clover, we discovered clover, red clover for making our silage and white clover for uh, grazing. So the following year we, we, we put in loads of clover that year and that was amazing, that was our lifeblood. So the animals would lie in the clover. I also think the clover fed uh, beef uh, adds flavour as well. So now all our animals, we have a clover system in place. We received and use white clover for grazing. So all our animals are lying uh, fat in the summertime. Their bellies fill a lovely white, natural white clover, which uh, is self uh, nitrogen and grows there on its own without any form of chemicals. So. That was a hard lesson we learned there, but a very invaluable one. And now we don't have to purchase very expensive uh, nitrogens. It's all done naturally through the clover. How many do you have in the herd? We have a total herd here of about 120 cows uh, in total. And we keep their cows right through now to beef. So that's, uh, now you're, you have a partnership there with Hannon Meats, or they're the distributor of mm -hmm. the beef. So they go from here to the abattoir and then they go to Hannon Meats. Yeah. Uh, and they go through a dry edging process there. That, that, that's correct. Um, I was going to say earlier, um, we we done all this to produce uh, a nice beef for, that could be served at the fine dining experience up at the castle. Um, but we realised that uh, we only could probably eat about two or three in a year up at the house. So what we were going to do with all the other cattle, we hadn't got a bodily clue. So we decided we needed to find, you know, somebody or, or to, you know, to do a farm shop or how do we get rid of the other 110 cattle that we don't need. So we looked at different various things. Farm shop was one idea. We, we quickly came away from that idea because Glenarm is a very isolated place. You know, you've got to see all around you on one side. So um, we decided probably uh, a shop would be limited, people would have to travel a long way to come to Lenarm. So we identified that we needed a good pro uh, processing partner. But of course the problem with that is that you know, if you put all this effort into producing the best beef uh, that you can possibly eat or taste or have, and then you give it to somebody that doesn't really have the same care or attention than you do, they could almost just undo any of your good work. So we tried very hard to find someone that would have the same passion and drive to produce this wonderful product as yourselves. And this one name kept coming up, and it came up on three different occasions from three different uh, areas. That's, uh, 
a guy called Peter Hanna. And apparently Mr. Hanna had been looking for the best beef he could get. So we gave him a call um, and I could tell that day I rang him, he probably had about 30 of those calls a week and uh, saying that I've got the best beef, do you want to come and have a look? Anyway, he came up to Lenarm and we got him a cup of coffee and he says yes, he's had all these conversations, everybody has got the best, best beef, piece of beef. We took him up, showed him the beef, and he was completely bowled over with what I saw, and he thought, this is fantastic, this is what I'm looking for, this could be the beef for me. And when we sent up our first animal, he rang his back and said, um, this is looking very, very good, I'll call you in three weeks' time after I have a taste. And uh, he rang back three weeks later to say, it was amazing, never tasted anything like it. Now he then, um, also very cleverly does something, uh, he's got this salt aged um, chamber which has got about oh, probably two or three tons of uh, Himalayan salt all the way from Afghanistan, it's quite clever so he can age uh, the, the beef uh, that bit more longer uh, than a normal uh, processor could hang it for and I believe he's got the only Himalayan salt aged chamber in, in Europe uh, so but when it comes out of that chamber, uh, probably instead of the normal process would be about 20 to 21 days, but he can take it up to 28 to 30 days. And when it comes out of there, it's just amazing. And it has won a great taste award, which confirms how amazing it is. Yeah, it's just, uh, you need a really piece of good beef to get three stars in the great taste awards. And uh, Peter managed to do that with, with our beef, which we're absolutely um, delighted about. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Now, Geraldine O'Sullivan brings you some tasty treats from the kingdom. There are lots of interesting festivals on over the summer and one of those is coming up next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, the 12th and 13th of July. And that's the Scallop Festival in Belinch Island. I'm joined now by Joanne Cahill, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you, Geraldine. Pleasure to, to be here be here with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the background to the setup of the festival? The concept, I suppose, came about uh, five and a half years ago. A group of us came together to, to come up with an idea of promoting Valencia, getting people to come to the island for a different event as opposed to the, the last week in July, the first two weeks in August, which would be traditionally the time people would come on holidays to the island. And also to introduce people to the uniqueness of the Valencia Island King Scallop themselves and, and actually get them out there. So it was it's a non-for-profit um, festival that is run purely by volunteers across the board over two days. And we, we took a chance five years ago to, to, to see if there would be a market, if people would be interested in it. And it has grown from strength to strength as a family family weekend. 
which is which we're thrilled with, obviously. So for listeners who wouldn't be that familiar with Valencia Island, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what it's like there? Uh, Valencia Island is an oasis off the Kerry coast. We're located on the, the just off the Ring of Kerry Road, the N70. Um, you can get to us by the car ferry, which runs from Easter to October, or by a bridge from Port McGee. The island itself is three miles wide, seven miles long, but it packs a punch. There is so much to do for the entire family. Um, I suppose the, the history of the island, um, one of our huge claims to fame is the fact that the transatlantic cable that connected Europe to North America for the first time went from Valencia. Um, it was a precursor to, to the internet and to the communication system we have in place today. Um, we also have the Valencia Island Lighthouse at Cromwell Point is open to tourists, open to the public um, daily from 11 o'clock to, to 5.30, which is a great opportunity for, for people to, to see what it's like from, from the top of, um, of our lighthouse. We also have access from Valencia and Port McGee to the, the Skellig Rocks, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, in the summer months, there is Valencia Island Sea Sports, which operates in the harbour with a 25-foot trampoline, which brings a great activity um, to, to the, the village of Knightstown. There's, there's always happy kids around the place. And we have a wonderful marina um, as well, which brings an array of colourful boats and yachts into the harbour, which is absolutely super too. Um, I suppose in one sense, the island has everything for, for, for walkers, for family, for those who just want a quiet escape. Um, we, we feel we have it all and, and love to see come, people coming to, to visit us. Great. And for the Scallop Festival itself, then, can you give us an idea of the events that are on over the weekend? Over the weekend, we have a great array of, of events kicking off on Saturday morning with an open boat angling competition at 10 o'clock, um, which is suitable for the entire family, which is great and a great opportunity for, for everyone from, from the grandparents down to the kids to, to get out onto the sea and, and catch a fish. Um, we also have the, the Valencia Island Cricket Club are holding um, an open event both the Saturday and Sunday mornings in, in the local park, which is um, great fun to join in on. And then the main event will kick off at two o'clock with the opening parade down the village of Knightstown, um, which will be led by last year's Mr. King Scallop, Pat Curtin. And what we're doing this year is we're inviting all children to participate in, in the opening parade and to come dressed in anything nautical, be it a starfish or a pirate. Imagination is your your. There is no limit really to to what what you can what we're expecting, and I think it will just add some great colour. And um, we'll also have members of the Blanche Island Pipe Band, joined by the Clorgan Pipe Band, which will um, lead the way down the village. So that's always a lovely spectacle and a great way of starting off the the festival. Um, and then from there, the the actual the chefs will start cooking um, on the waterfront from two o'clock. Um, what we will be having this year, which is a great addition, is the fact that we're going to have scallop being served both Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Um, we have been limited to one day up to now, but um, we're going for two days this year. So on Saturday, we have five chefs from different um, restaurants in the locality who are um, giving their time freely to cook the scallop. 
and then on Sunday we'll have four um, four chefs. The different the different area different restaurants that are supporting us are the Royal, the Coffee Dock, um, Nightstown Coffee Shop, the Skellig Rock Steakhouse in Carsevine, Pod Creperie, and we've got Paul Dolph, formerly of Lighted House Cafe, who um, comes out of retirement every year to help us out. And um, our special guest is John Casey. He's a renowned international chef who has been our judge in our Mr. King Scallop Cook-Off, which is a very unique event, but he has also agreed to, to cook the, the scallop, which would be a rare treat for anybody who, who makes it down at the weekend. So can you tell us what is the cook-off or how do you become Mr. or Mrs. King Scallop? Well, there, we've always been questioned why there isn't a Mrs. King Scallop, but we've always gone with the Mr., given that the, the scallop in Valencia Harbour are king scallop. They're larger than, than the normal scallop that you get there. They're unique in our harbour, which we're very proud of. And as a result, we decided we'd put the boys to the test. So every year we get a group of willing volunteers whose names are drawn out of a hat to partake in, in a cook-off. Um, what happens is they're all amateurs. They get up on stage and they're given a bag of ingredients along with a couple of scallop to prepare, they give 15 minutes to to prepare and um, serve their scallop, and whoever the, they are then judged, and the best dish um, would be deemed the, the Mr. King scallop for 2014. So we have um, a great crew actually this year from the the current king Pat Curtin will be defending his title, but he's also been taken on by his young son Paul, so that gives some good rivalry up on stage. And you've got Alan Egan, um, a, a Knightstown man, Ryan Walsh, who is also an Islander, but is in the Navy. So he's representing the, 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 the Navy this year. And with John Gagan, um, every year we, have, we like to bring somebody from the outside um, off the island. So John is a Waterford man who actually works in Lynch Island Coast Guard radio station. A very important job there. And he is taking the role as, as our, as our blow-in. And then representing the, the middle of the island, Chapeltown, we've got John Cooper, who apparently has been practicing all year in anticipation of, of actually partaking. So it should be good fun. It's always good banter. So is that on the Saturday or the Sunday, that particular yes, competition? The cook-off itself will be taking place um, on the waterfront at 5.30 on the Saturday afternoon. And then the crowning will take place at 10 p.m. on Sunday night after the World Cup World Cup final, um, the, the crowning, the, the most important event of the weekend um, will be the crowning. And it's it always brings out a good crowd in fairness. So in terms of the events that are on around the island next weekend, are they free or is there a charge for some of them? Uh, the majority of them are free. Um, now, obviously, they're for the actual scallop tasting, there, there is a charge for that. That's five euro per, per sample. Um, however, the samples are actually the size of a starter, which is a very good deal. And then with regard to some of the events, there is a nominal fee. Um, that information could be found, will be found on the Valencia Island website, www.valenciaisland.ie. Um, but one of the, I suppose one of the, the events that, that would be a huge one is the Kids Try Aquathon which is a run and a swim. Now, there's a small fee involved in that just to cover the costs of insurance, um, but that's from age groups 8 to 16, and that takes place at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Registration is 12.30. 
but it's actually super to watch the kids um, partaking in this event, which has grown from strength to strength over the years. So it sounds like there's lots of activities on over the weekend and the best place for people to get information. Is that the website? Can you just remind us of that again? The website is www.valentiaisland.ie and also you can follow us on Facebook, Valencia Island King's Gallop. And there is um, constant updates going up on the page there. Um, and also to let, let everybody know that there is music both Saturday and Sunday um, on, on the waterfront for your enjoyment, along with um, local kids partaking in, in a showcase of their talents, which will take place on the Saturday as well. So it should be a great weekend, um, but as long as the weather are our biggest thing, but fingers crossed it will be kind to us again this year because last year was just phenomenal. We had the amazing heat wave. So although we may not get that lucky this year, we are hopeful that um, that the sun will shine. Great. Fingers crossed, though, for some fine weather and look forward to all those delicious scallops down in Valencia Island. Thanks very much, Joanne Cahill, for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. Cheers. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Last week we played some interviews from my visit to Tiesto Dublin and this week we have another one for you. Sturd O'Keefe is a County Tipperary man who came to prominence on Irish TV after his TV success in the US. When I met him I started by asking him how it all came about. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. So search from Nina yes. to LA, how does that happen? Uh, Nina to LA, I know. Um, well, I went to culinary school in Dublin, in Codbury Street, in 2000 to 2004 after school. And um, I just kind of wanted to get away. I always wanted to do television and I always wanted to, to um, just kind of live in America. I always wanted to give it a go and see what it was like. It always kind of fascinated me. And, um, and so I, an opportunity came up in the Napa Valley to work at a hotel there. So I took it upon myself just to kind of just apply, apply for, um, for the visa and stuff like that. So I went over and did that for two years. And then the dream was to always live in Los Angeles and do the Hollywood thing and that whole thing. And I tried acting and that wasn't for me. And then... Well, that went, was going to be my next question. Yeah. Do you, like, were you into drama and things like that? Well, like, up? not really, but it was just kind of like, like Los Angeles is a place where you go and you can be anything like you know no one kind of like looks down upon you or anything like that like if you have ambition and you want to try something you want to do it and you put the work in like it pays off it's just one of those kind of towns and um and so i met my manager i worked at a restaurant there and you know and it was friends of friends and i met my manager and he started like being like he was like the one i was always cooking at the time and then i always wanted to do tv and i wanted to do a hosting then i decided and he's like well, look, do hosting but do it through food he said that's what you should be doing you have a degree in culinary arts you're you know, and um, and you're Irish. You have that accent. He's like, I can sell that. You know, and I was like, okay, well, look, I trust you. And um, and so you make it sound very easy that you, the way that you got the agent. But I'd say there was it, a, like how many years did it take before that actually? It didn't happened? take that long. It was like my second year in LA, really? and it, yeah, and it's like it was even my yeah, it was like my for a year, year and a half. It was just all right, right timing, and like there's all, there's always a bit of luck involved, right time, right place. But then. You know, 
he was like, you know, get like busy, get your shit together. Like I need, you know, you have to get all your ducks in the lines because when it happens, it happens really fast. And I'm like, okay. So like, I listened to him and his advice and I created the website and, and he started pitching me to endorsements. And then that's when I got the Tupperware endorsement. They wanted someone new, someone upcoming. And um, I did that for two years. And then I, then that, then the Food Network show followed through that because I was in an agency and and the production company was doing this show and I interviewed for it and they really liked me and I shot the pilot and then they went for two seasons and and then I got on the Oprah Network and then it just once you get on one or two things then it kind of just just turns you know what I mean it's like a, it's like a machine um, but you still have to work it doesn't like you can't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring um, it's you know you're constantly like hustling to get onto the next thing onto the next thing and, and get the cookbook deal and you know I just I got my cookbook deal there in January in February in New York and so um, but that'll be out next year so it's just you know it's kind of going along there's three or four TV shows in the works right now over there in the States um, that I'm up for and so I'm going back now next week to follow up on another one and for TLC and it's mad but it's great the opportunities are great there there's always something going on you know and in terms of the food then it must be quite different from Irish food like yeah. I'm, I'm sure they don't like lots of butter and salt and all of that like you know you're totally right like I don't even eat that much butter over there but when I come home here I have like two pounds of it like every week you know and it's it is, it is different it's lighter the cuisine is lighter but because the, like you know but like when you're in Ireland and you know I know it doesn't happen that often but you know when you do get like the heat wave or like when it gets really hot you don't want heavy food you just you want something lighter you want that you want to drink exactly and um, so I feel like in, you know in California or in LA it's it's always hot it's always 80 degrees outside it's always the sun is always shining so you don't want like hot suits you don't want like big like you don't want mashed potatoes you don't you know you don't want those heavy foods you eat like lots of fish you eat lots of salads you eat you know um, just anything that's like not that rich like that French typical French food richness you know and um so, yeah. Is that a bit of a culture shock for you, moving it, from the Irish climate just out to that sort of Yeah, climate? but in a good way, in a really, really nice way, uh, to move out to that climate. Um, I couldn't believe it. it was al- it's almost like you're on vacation every day, living there. You know, people would say to me, like, it is like, to, to answer your question, it is like a culture shock at the beginning. But it was nice because I entered into the States in Napa Valley, which was a very small town I lived in. It was probably the same size as Nina, you know. And um, so that was nice, and I kind of like slowly, like um, slowly got into like the American thing, the American routine, and stuff like that. I really, really liked it, the way they lived, and um, it was like happy all the time. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I was like, they're weirdos. But then, I, you know, after a while, you live there. It's like, no, these, these are they're just like this, you know. And you must encounter a lot of famous people. Yeah. So who's really nice and who's not so nice? nice. Um, I mean, I ran into Charlize Theron, I'd say about three times, like four times in the the local grocery store. Like, and and like, she'll say hello to you, like, just like, you know, and and she's really, really nice. Irish. Irish, yeah. Stewart as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's funny. Cindy Crawford was lovely. Sharon Stone was uh, like a gem. She was so nice. Did you cook for these? Have you cooked for these stars? Yeah, it was actually uh, Cindy. Crawford's birthday. Wow. And I didn't realise that at the time. And then she walks into the kitchen and I'm like, oh Jesus. I was like, why didn't anybody tell me this? And um, and then it was like the host was like, Yeah, you're cooking for Cindy Crawford's birthday. I'm like, oh that's fantastic. Okay, great. Um, and what sort of menu would be on that? Night? I think like that night I I cooked I think I did halibut that night. I mean, like halibut with like a risotto, like something very simple and kind of like light. Because that was out in Malibu, and like they're all about their health out there. And 
Um, and yeah, it's just nothing too heavy. It's always kind of on the lighter side. And what about seasoning and about salt? Are they quite light on the salt? I, I actually did an interview recently with Brian McDermott, who is the new salt chef in Ireland. Oh, wow, okay. He just doesn't use salt in anything. He's all about herbs. Yeah. So are they like that in the States as well? No, they do like their salt. Do you know what I mean? Like, like They like their nice sea salts and stuff like that. And um, I mean, I certainly, I have to use salt in my food. I just like, I have to. It's just, it's just automatic for me. Oh, we have to send Brian McDermott <laughs> He'll knock that out of you. Oh, right. Now, I want to ask you before we finish up about technology and okay. how technology has affected your career in terms of social media and you have an app. Yeah, an app. Um, my app is Stewart's Kitchen. Um, we did it alongside the TV show on TV3. There was a company in America that I pitched this to and I was like, how great would it be that people could watch me on TV and then go down all the recipes where I show you how to do the recipe step by step. I just thought it was kind of like, why hasn't this been done before? Um, so we did that. It's a great app and it's, it's simple. It has affected, like I'm a big social media guy. Um, I have someone in Los Angeles working for me on the social media side of things too, like just doing ads and stuff like that. You know, I don't know how to do those kind of things, but um, it is, it's vital. It's almost like, you know, companies don't even hire you now unless you have a following. It's like, it's such an important thing. They want you to be able to tweet out. They want you to be able to Facebook out and, and stuff like that. So it is really, really important uh, nowadays. If you could cook for any three people in the world, dead or alive, who would they be? Uh... I would love to cook for One Republic because it's my favorite band. Um, who else? Oh, it's such a tough question. Um, I don't know. Say I me, Stuart. You, of course. You, yeah, of course. Okay, that's two. One that's two. More, and yeah. then I'd love to cook for. Do you know what would be fun? I'd love to go for Doreen Allen. That'd be fun. Really? Yeah, that would be fun because I grew up with like grew up with her on television. Television. I would cook out of her cookbooks when I was really I was about like seven or eight with my aunt. I say Doreen Allen would love to have you. Totally. Cook I have like all her books in America. Like if I, I have them all on my shelf at home, I always like go back to them and kind of have a look through because it's just like her forgotten skills of cooking is a great. It's a great cookbook. I love that cookbook. And have you ever been to Ballymaloo Litchfield? I've never been down there. No. You love it. I have to go down, like, and, um, yeah, so, uh, no, it's definitely, like, a trip on the, I mean, maybe, like, I'm going to be shooting the photograph photography from a cookbook in Ireland. I'm definitely going to do that, because we're going to do, like, kind of an American-Irish thing on it. And, um, and so, yeah, so maybe, like, a trip down to Ballymenu maybe could be in my future, you know? You'd love it down there. You would love it. Okay, the quick fire round, Stuart. Okay, go. Which one? Wine or water? Wine. Meat or fish? Meat. Salt or pepper? Salt. Butter or margarine? Butter. Reservation or walk-in? Walk-in. Chocolate fondue or chocolate mousse? Mousse. Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. Saturday kitchen or great British menu? Saturday kitchen. Chips or potatoes? Chips. Thanks, George. Nice to meet you. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Okay, okay, Stuart was under pressure to say he'd cook for me there, but don't spoil the magic, for goodness sake. And speaking of magic, have you heard that there's a new fairy trail in Atay? Well, there is, and if you're looking for something to do outside of the events, highlight it by Helen McDade of Fulcher, Ireland last week. Put it on your list. But before you go, have a listen to this so you know what goodies to bring with you. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
You may have heard that there's a new ferry trail opened in Atay in County Limerick. And that got us thinking in the best possible taste office, what do the fairies eat? We thought we'd better find out from an expert and I have Neve Sherwin-Barry, who is co-founder of the Irish Ferry Door Company on the line. Good evening, Neve. Hi there, how are you? Neve, it's very typical of Irish hospitality to welcome new people to the area with a cake or buns or maybe a stew. So can you tell us, are there any special dietary requirements for the fairies that have moved into a tay? Well... <laughs> Basically, all fairies, um, like ourselves, fairies like different things. But one thing, well, two things that they all like, absolutely every single one of them, are raisins and Cheerios. They're their two favourite things. And obviously at Christmas time or maybe for summer solstice, um, which is a very big thing for fairies, they get a chocolate raisin, but that's it. Raisins are their favourite, definitely. Now, they're only small. So does that mean that they don't eat very much? Like, would one raisin last last them a whole week or would oh, they have yeah. huge appetites? Uh, well, you see, some, again, uh, fairies do a different way. Uh, one raisin a week is plenty. Now, a, a lot of children are given their fairies one raisin a day and that's okay too because what the fairies do then is they just stockpile. So they have a load of raisins then um, in, in a stock for, for whether they're going out to be in the wood or whether it's winter time. You know, whatever really suits the family, but they actually only need one a week. Now, whenever you're talking about stockpiling, that's very interesting because in the Noonan household, whenever Hannah, who is three, and Mikey, who's coming too, are taking far too long to eat their dinner, it's quite common for me to see the fairies waiting to kind of steal away with it and the nice dessert. Absolutely. You see, fairies love good food. They just absolutely love, they love a pea as well. A pea is, 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 is always, always works wonders with fairies. Um, really, they love, they're, they're not hugely fond of sugar. They're not hugely fond of, obviously they're not because they know, you know, one of their duties is collecting teeth and they know sugar does damage to teeth. So really, that's not something that they have ever liked. So they love proper good food. And speaking of teeth then, I'd say they're very good to brush their teeth after every meal. Very importantly, obviously very tiny little toothbrush, tiny little toothpaste, uh, really, literally three times a day fairies will brush their teeth. Very, very important. And then one last question, very important in Ireland. What do they like to drink? Rainwater. That's their favourite drink. So what you need to do, if you want to give your fairy a drink, you just put a little bottle cap outside. Obviously, we get a lot of rain in Ireland, so it's never a problem. You just put it on your doorstep outside, collect a little bit of rainwater, put it in front of your fairy door. Happy days. They'll love it. So any listeners now that might be taking a spin to a tay with their children to visit the new fairy trail there, a few reasons and just have something to put the rainwater in. And exactly. Or but very important when you're going to the fairy wood there in Limerick that when you go up to each fairy, now each fairy is behind the door, whether it's night or day, they are listening and watching for everybody. So it's really important when you go that you give every fairy a wave and say, tell them what your name is and say hi to them because they're there, they're listening. And sometimes they can be a little bit adventurous. Now, as we know, fairies shouldn't be seen by humans. Woodland fairies can be a little bit adventurous, so they might just hop from branch to branch. You might see kind of a very quick branch moving or a little bit of fairy dust in the air, but just keep your eyes open. And if some of them are looking for homes, is it true that you can get doors to install in your house for them? Pretty, yeah, pretty much. Basically, what we what's happened is um, Queen Kate, who is, is head of the ferries and the National Ferry Council, they've actually commissioned our company, the Irish Ferry Door Company, to make doors for them. So basically, all of the ferries, all ferries would love a human home. So what you need to do is you get a door, you put it up in your house. 
decide where it's going first. You pick a name for your fairy. All fairies come unnamed. You leave the little key out overnight. There's a tiny key in the little bottle. If the key is gone the next morning, you know your fairy has arrived, moved in and is living just behind the door. And where can people get more information about that? It's on our website, theirishfairydoorcompany.com. Neve, thanks so much for talking to us about that. I'm sure now there'll be lots of little boys and girls out there that will be much more studious about eating their dinners and Very brushing important. their teeth afterwards. Absolutely. And most importantly, enjoy the magic. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. If you're heading to the Fairy Trail, please enjoy the magic. Another event taking place soon is the Dalriada Festival in Glenarm Estate. Earlier in the programme, we heard all about the wonderful short-horn beef that is grazing there from Adrian Morrow. And Adrian had this to say about the festival. The Dalriada Festival, we aim to showcase what is unique and good about the glens and the surrounding area. So we've got our beef and we've got the salmon there. We invite them all in, um, any other local artisan producers, uh, no matter how big or how small, we get everybody from all around the area to come to the Alriana Festival and we try and serve up uh, the beef over the two days, the salmon, homemade breads, jams, chutneys, um, lobster even, you know, because we're right beside the sea we try and use as much of the produce from the sea as well. And we showcase all that along with uh, music, uh, traditional music and sport. So it's a, it's a busy week, okay, uh, music, food and sport. <laughs> um, but it's great for the whole area. We work closely with the local community uh, as well and they you know, lay on events all week. And so you can come to the Narm on the 13th and 14th of July and sample all these mouthwatering products. And if people want to find out more about that, is there a web address? There's a web address, yes, which is uh, just uh, uk. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. A few other events to note include the Pig and Porter Festival, which starts on Thursday and runs until Saturday. This festival has scrumptious food and great live music, and it's the largest tag rugby event in the world, with 130 participating teams and thousands of spectators there to enjoy the fun. The Full Moon Barn Dance is on this Saturday in Kilmeady. Tickets cost €50, and you get lots of food, drink and music for that. It's in aid of St John's Ward, Our Lady's Children Hospital, Crumlin. Then there's the Valencia Keen Scallop Festival and the Homegrown Food Festival in Letterkenny, County Donegal. And Helen from Fulcher, Ireland talked about those events last week. All the details for those are available on discoverireland.ie forward slash food. Brian McDermott, a.k.a. the No Salt Chef, who was on the programme and did a demo in D&M Garden Centre recently, is running a number of evening classes over the summer. These take place in his cookery school in Inishowen in County Donegal. And next Monday, he's running a class called Summer Salads and Barbecue Sizzlers. Full details on the nosaltchef.com website. Thanks for sending me in your event info. Keep them coming. Send them in to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet the details to me at Queen of Org. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm.
Thanks so much for tuning in this evening. Whether it's by traditional wireless or online using the tunein.com website or app, we really appreciate your company. And you can catch up on previous shows on soundcloud.com. Just look for Food and Drink Show and you'll find us there. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the show tonight, including all the fabulous guests and producer Gerlino Sullivan. Until next Tuesday, when we're having an artisan producer bonanza, be good and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!